This is Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A new ordinance to drop racial quotas for the Police Civilian Oversight Board has been introduced by Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and five city council members. The introduced amendment to the original 2020 ordinance will change from specific quota requirements to simply encouraging the council to include members from a diverse background. This change comes in the face of a lawsuit filed on behalf of David Blaska by conservative group the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Blaska claims that he was unconstitutionally rejected for a seat on the board and believes he was ineligible for consideration because he is white. The full council's final vote on the ordinance amendment is expected on May 10th. Madison Alder Lindsay Lemmer of District 3 has announced today that she will resign from the Madison Common Council, effective at noon on May 11th. Lemmer's resignation announcement clarified that she has accepted a senior position that requires her full attention. Lemmer has served as an alder since her first election in April 2019 and has participated in many committees, including the Housing Strategy Committee and the Equal Opportunities Commission. In the announcement, Lemmer also stated, quote, Representing our community on the Madison Common Council has been one of the greatest honors of my life, end quote. An interim District 3 alderperson will be appointed by the Common Council until a new elected alder is sworn in next year. And now for today's COVID numbers. COVID cases continue to climb in Wisconsin as Dane County has now been raised to medium levels of COVID activity, according to the CDC. Here in Dane County, yesterday there were 648 new confirmed cases for the virus, with 28 people remaining hospitalized from COVID. Around the state, full data is not yet available for COVID cases over the weekend, though the state's seven-day average for cases sits at 1,071 confirmed cases every day over the past week. Public Health Madison-Dane County reminds everyone to stay vigilant of the virus and that the best way to protect yourself from serious illness is to get vaccinated. And now, on to today's top stories. While the State Department of Natural Resources has the final say in all policy regarding Wisconsin's natural resources, the Conservation Congress allows everyday Wisconsin residents to give their thoughts on a variety of topics. Last week, the Conservation Congress released the results of their annual spring hearing, a statewide survey on how the state's natural resources should be managed. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has the details. Last week, the Wisconsin Conservation Congress gathered to present their spring hearing information. Both outdoors enthusiasts and regular folk alike were encouraged to give their opinion on a wide range of policy issues within the State Department of Natural Resources. From standardizing fishing seasons to PFAS regulations to wildlife killing contests, the Wisconsin Conservation Congress was created in 1937 as a way to allow the public to weigh in on issues concerning the state's natural resources and as a completely 
separate entity from the state DNR. Citizen-appointed delegates work as a liaison between the Natural Resources Board and the state DNR and its residents. Paul Reith is one of those delegates and represents the area containing Dane County. Conservation Congress is created by statute from the state legislature as an advisory body to the state government on natural resources issues. So that comes from us advising the Natural Resources Board, uh, but then also through involvement and cooperation, sometimes and sometimes conflict with the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, It's really our responsibility as volunteers to bring the perspective of the citizens of Wisconsin to the department and help ensure that all voices are heard. Each spring, the Congress sends out a survey on policy issues regarding Wisconsin's attitude towards natural resources. This year's survey contained 63 questions, with an additional 42 questions being submitted by and for Dane County residents. Reith says that while the Congress touched on all sorts of issues, there was one that seemed to stand out more than others. I think that there there was a lot of interest this year in different resolutions that were focused on environmental factors for the lead shot, a great deal of, of environmental questions and uh, questions that just came up about overall usage. And, and of course, we get the perennial questions about size limits and bag limits on lakes and and what we're doing for CWD and other things that are important to wildlife. One of the hottest issues in this year's spring hearing was how the DNR should go about dealing with PFAS issues. There were two questions on this year's survey regarding PFAS. The first question asked if people would support additional PFAS testing in drinking water across Wisconsin. The overwhelming answer to this question was yes, with over 78%, or around 17,000 people, advocating for additional testing. The second question was more open-ended, asking if people supported the DNR to continue to advocate for PFAS protections and cleanup. The answer was even more popular, with over 81%, or 18,000 people, saying yes. The challenge is, though, is that it behaves differently. Uh, And that's where, you know, certainly the, the question, you know, asking about additional testing is we're trying to gauge at some point we know that very little is known, but but how concerned are are the people of Wisconsin? So I'm I'm really excited about not only the drinking water measurements, but just to continue to do more analysis and understand where PFAS is statewide. Also in this year's Congress was the topic of wildlife killing contests. A wildlife killing contest is a hunting competition where hunters see who can kill the most of a given animal, usually something like rabbits or coyotes. Respondents were much more split on this issue, with around 44% being in favor of banning the practice and about 43% against banning the contests. Similarly, game farms and hunting preserves were also debated in the Congress. A game farm is a farm where hunters can pay to hunt a specific animal in a private setting closed off from public land. Here in Wisconsin, this animal is usually pheasants, which are bred on the farm to then be let loose on the property for people to hunt. People were overwhelmingly against the presence of game farms in Wisconsin, with over 11,000 people saying they oppose the practice and just under 4,000 supporting the farms. Over 28,000 people took this year's Conservation Congress survey, and while larger organizations are allowed a voice at the Congress, the goal of the Conservation Congress is still focused on individual citizens 
citizens of Wisconsin, and all questions must come from those individuals. Kari Lee Zimmerman is the Conservation Congress liaison for the DNR, acting as the go-between for the two organizations. She says that she considers this year's hearing a success. I'm really pleased with the results, like the number of people that we had participating. I think it was really impressive to see such a large number of people that, you know, want to be involved in resource management. I think that's really uh, great to see. The Wisconsin Conservation Congress is holding a meeting this evening starting at 630. You can watch that meeting online and more information can be found on the Wisconsin Conservation Congress page on the DNR website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers says the new Office of Environmental Justice, which he established by executive order on Friday, will be charged with ensuring the state's environmental initiatives are inclusive and benefit Wisconsin's diverse communities. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin has a new Office of Environmental Justice, which is tasked with centering equity and fairness as the state proceeds with a new clean energy strategy. The Environmental Protection Agency reports the heaviest impacts of climate change typically fall on underserved communities who are, quote, least able to prepare for and recover from heat waves, poor air quality, flooding, and other impacts, unquote. A disparity the new office will be tasked with addressing. At a news conference Friday, Governor Tony Evers said the office will work across state agencies to ensure an equitable response to climate change. The cost of doing nothing? It's far too high, and we can't ignore the reality facing communities across our state any longer. A report by the Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts found extreme storms and flooding are among the most common cases of extreme weather in Wisconsin. Frequent and extreme flooding can contaminate drinking water and lead to outbreaks of waterborne illnesses. According to the governor's office, the state's new clean energy plan could create more than 40,000 new jobs in the state by 2030. Pamela Ricker de la Rosa with the advocacy group Clean Wisconsin says it's important that those jobs are also available to workers from disadvantaged and low-income communities, a goal she says the new Office of Environmental Justice will help achieve. Investing in these changes can really help to solve the economic crises that many individuals in our underserved communities are living with every day. Because these are jobs that can't be outsourced and that can't be automated. Evers previously proposed the Office of Environmental Justice in his 2021 through 2023 state budget. But the proposal was stripped out by Republicans in the legislature. This time around, the governor bypassed the legislature by using an executive order to establish the office. According to the governor, the office will be led by a yet-to-be-named Director of Environmental Justice and a Chief Resilience Officer. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This past Saturday, Outreach Madison held a large celebration to celebrate transgender folks in the community. It included tie-dye, bingo, free snacks, and a clothing swap. It was, in part, counter-programming to a trans-exclusionary radical feminist conference that was also held over the weekend. But largely, it was an event where trans people and their allies enjoyed a windy but warm afternoon at Olbrick Park. For more, we go to WORT reporter Jade Aziri-Ramos, who was at the park. The Madison Area Transgender Association organized the Celebrate Trans Joy and Community event on Saturday. The association, also called MADA, is a program of outreach LGBTQ plus community center. Um, we wanted to do something to center trans joy because we learned about, well, A, because it needed to happen anyway, and B, because we heard about an event that was being coordinated by some other um, trans antagonistic groups. So we wanted to do something that would bring joy to the community and take 
some of the uh, focus away from that and center trans joy. That's Julep, who is part of the MATA leadership team. She was largely in charge of greeting participants as they arrived at the event. It's been amazing, and I, I couldn't have imagined that just a couple months of planning would turn out to be like this. There was bingo, tie-dye, and free snacks. Madison, who's also on the MATA leadership team, says the group came up with activities that would be easy and fun while being quick and inexpensive. Uh, the button making, you know, so often you don't announce your pronouns, people don't know. So making a pronoun button, you know, that a lot of it just came from, hey, what kind of need do we have? Well, okay, the clothing swap. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something like I transitioned years ago. I still have a lot of my old male clothes. I don't need them, but a trans man here might. So, you know, just things that made sense, things that were easy and brought people out. The thing I love about clothing swaps is they're very like self-directing, like running a clothing swap is really just teaching people to like do things themselves. <laughs> I mean, I got this. Uh, it's a beautiful like black like torrid dress with like uh, very soft, has pockets, got roses all over it. I love it. Jax was running the clothing swap, which according to M meant running around and folding clothes. There were tarps with lots of donated clothes laid out and people were digging through to find clothes they wanted. Oh, yeah, I saw someone wearing one of my ex's shirts. Uh, I was like, thank God. The event also hosted educational and informational tables for both outreach and their partnering organizations, like UW's Gender and Sexuality Campus Center and GSAFE, an organization that advocates for queer youth in Wisconsin's K-12 schools. AJ is a transgender health advocate at Outreach. He connects trans people with resources in the community and provides cultural competency training around LGBTQ plus issues. He says as a new employee, he was blown away by the volunteer efforts to create the event. And especially the leadership we put on this event are amazing. Like incredibly committed to, you know, finding a place and a space where trans people can feel celebrated and safe and, you know, just kind of welcome um, in, a, in a comfortable way that like we don't really have as trans people in a lot of other spaces, you know, where you're worried about like, is somebody going to, you know, look at me because I'm dressed a certain way or, you know, I have facial hair and they didn't expect it or something like that. So this was, I think, based on the turnout, a very, very successful kind of way for people to just really celebrate transness and, and the joy that comes along with living as ourselves. Ultimately, Celebrate Trans Joy and Community resulted in just that trans joy in community. Okay, I'm Becca. I use they and he pronouns and the best part of today has been being surrounded by other queer and trans folks and having like a sense of expansive community and also the sunshine. Hi, my name is Alex. Uh, my pronouns are he, they. I feel like you never or rarely see a big group of trans people all together um, or like even in day-to-day, -day, maybe you see another trans person occasionally, but to see a lot of us in one place is very cool. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jade Isiri Ramos. It's now 6.21 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, the Progress Center for Black Women, a nonprofit organization aimed at creating powerful communities of black women based here in Madison, kicked off their new incubator program. That program, titled FOCUS, aims to help black entrepreneurs get the resources and mentorship they need to thrive in Dane County. 
To learn more about the program, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with the founder and director of the Progress Center for Black Women, Sabrina Madison. So starting things off, Sabrina, what is this new incubator program that you're launching? Yeah, so FOCUS, which stands for Fundamentals, Opportunities, Consistency, Understanding, and Success, is the combination of the entrepreneurial work that really began with the Black Women's Leadership Conference and the Black Business Expos back in 2016. And then now that we've hired a full-time manager of Entrepreneur Opportunity, Jasmine Appleton, she really dug into the data, into the information she's hearing from entrepreneurs, and together, mostly with her doing the bulk of the work, created this program that really centered in on those entrepreneurs' uh, individualized needs. And so this program launched yesterday, correct? How did that launch go? Oh, my God. It was beautiful and brilliant and engaging. So in short, we wanted to make the program launch itself fun and also give people a sort of a window into what the next couple months might look like. So we basically shared the program information, told folks how to get signed up for a one-on-one to learn more about potentially becoming part of the first cohort. And then we closed off our last hour or the second hour of the uh, program launch with a focused pitch. And so that pitch uh, had, I believe, 13 entrepreneurs. We expected 10, but we got three more who kind of snuck in there, which we made it work. And those entrepreneurs included, for the bulk of them, it was their first time pitching. So you can imagine there were some folks who had lots of nerves, but uh, they all did like a such a brilliant and fabulous job. And we gave away three cash prizes. And so now tell me a little bit about this program. What sort of yeah. resources are you providing for people? So each cohort and the standalone classes, they can expect to receive programming around operations. So that piece just focuses on the fundamentals entrepreneurs should have in place to start and manage their business successfully. And then they'll also cover marketing, which is simply the four P's of marketing place, price, product, and promotion. And then we also want to focus in on some professional development. So just helping the entrepreneurs create a vision for their own success and then matching them with the skills necessary to hit their professional development goals. And then it'll also be because it's very individualized as well, even though it's a cohort doing it together, we also want to ensure that we're taking care of both the uh, health of the business, but also the wellness of the entrepreneur itself. So we'll also have a wellness component. So there, this focuses on both the health and wellness of the business and the business owner by, you know, of course, us taking this holistic approach and serving their individualized needs. And then we'll have some fun, of course. Uh, there will also be a pitch that will cap off each incubator. Um, and we'll also, we, I believe what we're looking at right now is having a pitch every other month. But then this cohort themselves will have a pitch set aside just for the group. And then sort of looking at the city of Madison here, what made you decide to start this new incubator program? What sort of pushed you into launching sure. this? So it's it really, again, it comes from those very first early conferences and expos where uh, we were seeing folks who took part in those early years who continue to grow. They continue to connect with me. They continue to reach out to me for one-on-one coaching or advice or connections to resources. And then once we were into our progress center space and having the ability to bring on uh, Jasmine full time, that allowed me to focus in on how we want to best serve these entrepreneurs. How do we take what we learn from them, how we best are supporting them, what they're continuously asking us for, and create programming around the needs that we've already identified in our programming or our one-on-ones 
you know, with them. So this, at the end of the day, it's really a combination of work that began back in 2016 is to say, we've evaluated how they are coming to us. Why are they coming to us? What can we offer them um, in a cohort model so they also have each other to lean on? And it was really focused is what came out of it. What sort of needs do black entrepreneurs here in Madison need to succeed? What is sort of the need yep. for this sort of program? Yeah. So for one of the, the biggest examples is entrepreneurs who are not connected to the larger entrepreneurial ecosystem. Most of us who live here know that the entrepreneurial scene locally is thriving. There's a really thriving ecosystem here. And a lot of black entrepreneurs are simply not connected to that. So they are not, they're unaware of even something as simple as the Wisconsin Small Business Development Center. So a key component of focus is connecting them to the resource leaders who are here working on their behalf and they have no clue that those folks are here, for example. And so another element of it is um, one of our partners, Busy Busy, uh, they're working with us to create, for example, a workshop that it's like a buyer beware sort of workshop for entrepreneurs. But we have entrepreneurs who are sometimes taken advantage of, advantage of in the web development process. You know, they're paying a ridiculous amount of money to get websites built and then sometimes, you know, not getting the information turned over to them or getting the knowledge to run it on the back end. So we're educating them also, too, about the things that you need to be aware of, especially as a new entrepreneur. And then the day-to-day operations, you know, everything from proper accounting to preparing for your taxes to even customer service and what that looks like. So. They come to us for a little bit of everything, but what we've seen over the last year or so, especially uh, coming, you know, when we came into the pandemic, during the pandemic, and hopefully as we're easing our way into uh, less of a global health emergency, we're still seeing entrepreneurs who really need to get connected to financial resources. And so preparing them for to even be successful in writing a grant for a local opportunity is um, what they've come to us for. And Sabrina, we're coming up against the clock here. Where can people go to register for this program? And do you just have any final thoughts that uh, we didn't touch on here that you'd like to share? Yeah, so anyone interested in the program can go to our website and just send us an email. Our overall general email address is hello at censorsforblackwomen.org. And the last thing I'll just wrap up with is just I'm excited about it overall because even for our pitch and launch yesterday, there are lots of entrepreneurs who had never been in conversation with the local resource providers. So to see those le- le- those folks who are leaders in the resource community for small businesses in the room having full-on conversations with the entrepreneurs was, you know, like really filled me up. You know what I mean? So just to know that they're making the connections that I know they need to make in order to have long-term success, we were able to even witness the beginnings of their long-term success yesterday. I've been talking with Sabrina Madison, the founder and director of the nonprofit Progress Center for Black Women here in Madison, about their new incubator program designed to create a community for black entrepreneurs here in Madison. Sabrina, thank you for everything you do, and thank you for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Busy Finance Committee meetings, Well 15 updates, and more on Forward Lookout. The rise and fall and rise once again of drive-ins on Bridging the Gap. And a Nick Cage spectacular on Harry's Monday Movie Review. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. On this week's Forward Lookout, Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle look at busy finance committee meetings, canceled county board meetings, and an update on Madison's Well 15, and other meetings happening around Madison and Dane County this week. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from forwardlookout.com. And uh, she's here to tell us what's going on this week in local government. So we'll start with Monday in Dane County. Um, uh, the Youth Commission, tonight they're uh, having their By Youth for Youth Subcommittee, and that's happening right now. They have an award ceremony, so we want to let people know about that. But why don't you, uh, Brenda, why don't, we, uh, why don't you start with telling us about the Criminal Justice uh, Council, their Racial Disparity Subcommittee, which meets tomorrow at 1215. Sure. So they're going to be um, having a discussion about the Community Justice Center and the target population for that. And then they are also debriefing on the cities and counties um, fines and fees for justice. So I, I believe that that's a report that they're getting from other communities to see once what their fees are like. And then they're going to get a community restorative court update and an update on social workers working in the public defender's office. I wonder what are then, the fees are. I bet your Dane County's fees are remarkably low. I know somebody in uh, Jefferson County, right, who got, uh, it was like a 40 dollar paraphernalia ticket right so they went in to pay it and there was five hundred dollars in court costs oh wow yeah yeah i've noticed that too that a lot of the other counties seem to have a lot higher um fees than what dane county does mm-hmm. so it would be interesting to see how we compare yes and we should also mention that there's a whole bunch of meetings this this week that are canceled mostly i believe it's because uh the new county board chair probably hasn't appointed everybody to these committees yet so public protect- protection and judiciary Public Works and Transportation, Land Conservation Committee, Environment, Ag, and Natural Resources Committee, and the Health and Human Needs Committee are all canceled this week. So um, if you're wondering why we're talking about some maybe less talked about committees, it's because a lot of the main ones are not yet meeting with the new county board uh, personnel that are Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I was uh, a little bit light in the county business this (laughs) week. Yes, it is. (laughs) It is. All right, let's move on to the city of Madison, which uh, seems a lot more... Uh, busy this week, just uh, how it turned out. So tonight, uh, already in progress, we have the Finance Committee. So what's going on with them? Um, so they'll be appointing a new uh, chief of staff. Um, Karen, I can't say her last name, but Karen um, is going to be the new uh, Capusto Poloff, right? <laughs> Thank you. That that sounds good. <laughs> um, they're also going to be looking at the Firefighters Local 311 contract. Um, there's a whole bunch of non-competitive purchases again. Um, and then they're looking at a land sale for the Yahara Hills Golf Course to be uh, a future landfill. Um, they're also going to be looking at the um, money for Well 15. Um, and then they are looking at a program to help uh, pay for accessory dwelling units. Um, they've changed the laws to allow them, but um, getting them, getting a bank to finance them is usually a challenge. And so they're looking at a way to, to solve that. And then um, they have an amendment for Judge Joe Square, and that's. Uh, oh, and then they also are um, looking at increasing the money for the men's shelter, the Zaire Road location. Um, it's going to cost more than what they had anticipated. So quite a bit going on there. And uh, man, also tonight, a lot. Plan Commission. Uh, Arts Commission, the Sustainable Madison Committee. Um, I mean, you pick the you pick what you think is important here, Brenda. 
I probably should talk a little bit about planning commission. Um, they are going to be looking at the Yahara Hills neighborhood development plan. Um, they will be making some updates to that about the golf course. They will also be looking at three different TIF districts, um, Capitol Gateway, which is on East Washington, Stoughton Road, and Wingra. Um, they have all have some amendments to the plans for those TIF districts. Um, and then they'll be looking at changing the definition or amending uh, the regulations about nightclubs, restaurant nightclubs, and restaurant taverns, um, and that will be allowing um, more uses to be a right as opposed to um, having to go through the zoning process. And then they are also going to be looking at a project at um, 2165 Linden Avenue, which will require a, an amendment to the Shank Atwood Starkweather Worthington Park neighborhood plan. Um, and then they will be looking at a project at 119 Olin Avenue, which is um, the Parks Department. Um, I think that's their new offices there. There's also a project on Speedway Road and uh, the 900 block of East Washington, 4,000 block, 4,900 block of Flom Road, and 5109 Barton Road. So quite a few projects going on there. Um, not as heavy of an agenda as usual, but they do have plenty to talk about. Yes, and that is already in progress. So that's just tonight, uh, those two meetings. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, you know, another one uh, that I think a lot of people, particularly having to do with PFAS, are keeping a close eye on is the Water Utility Board. So they have a meeting tomorrow at 4.30, which is virtual. Yep. Uh, they do have um, some surplus property that they're looking at selling at the 10400 block of Old Sock Road. And then they also are looking at that $425,000 um, for well 15 for PFAS treatment um, for that project. And then there's a whole bunch of reports that if you're interested, um, they have like water quality, production, financial, and activity reports. So there's a, a bunch of things that are all in writing if you're interested in sort of catching up on what's going on at the water utility. Yes, a good idea there. Um, okay, what should we move on to next? I think, um, I don't know, urban design? I like that committee. They got three projects yeah. on there. Yeah, they did. They had a short agenda this time, yep. um, but they have a, a, a restaurant tavern project at 710 John Nolan Drive. And so they're renovating an existing office building. Um, and then they have on the 700 block of Regent Street, they have uh, 363 apartments that they are looking at building there. Oh, wow. And then on the 500 block of West Washington, there is a new multifamily building um, that they're looking at building. And that's so, uh, four thirty uh, on Wednesday, and then it's also virtual. The Urban Design Commission, uh, also on Wednesday, five p.m. The Vending Oversight Committee. So food carts, all sorts of fun things. This is your favorite committee, isn't it? <laughs> oh, sometimes I was on the food beat at one time. I don't know why they ever made me do that at Isthmus, but uh, <laughs> I had. A, I do have a soft spot in my heart for the good old VOC. Yeah. So the. What they have is um, some special vending approvals um, for the 2022 special events. And I think that's like they approve a whole bunch of them all at once. Um, and then they have the street vending staff report. Okay. All the all important street vending staff report. All right, Brenna. Well, we're uh, running out of time here. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should end with the police civilian oversight board, which is meeting on, is it Thursday? Yep, yeah. Thursday at five o'clock. Yep. And it's um, virtual. Yeah, everything is still pretty much virtual except for that Parks Department meeting at the county. Um, but for the Police Civilian Oversight Board, they're going to be getting a whole bunch of updates. Um, and then they are going to be looking at um, amendments to their ordinance about who should be members. There's a bunch of people whose terms are expiring already, which, yeah, um, 
yeah, like, wow, it's been, that's been a minute um, that they've been working at this and they're still working on sort of their internal organization. Um, and speaking of internal organization, they are also going to be looking at um, a new set of community-based organizations that make the recommendations to who's on that committee. And then they are going to be looking at the independent monitor staff hiring, um, getting some information about um, an administrative assistant, when they're going to hire an interim independent monitor if they need to do that. So, oh, man, they, they haven't, they, I guess they're stalled on finding a full-time one. They were close at the beginning of the yeah. year, but that didn't work out. Yeah, and so, yeah, going back to the drawing board, and now they're back to the point where they're doing an RFP just to get somebody to help recruit somebody. So it, it could probably be another year before we see any an independent monitor that will be our permanent one. Yes, and this was, you know, supposed to be the big reform after, you know, all the protests in 2020. So um, sometimes things take time to do right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, Brenda, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to check out what's happening this week in local government, Dane County and the city of Madison, head on over to forwardlookout.com and you will see uh, meeting times and agenda items and all sorts of good stuff. So thank you, Brenda. Yep, thanks, Dylan. On today's Past Isn't Past, we air part one of a two-part interview with ethnic studies professor Tim Messer-Cruz of Bowling Green University. He spoke with feature contributor Harry Richardson about working conditions in the 1880s and the rise of the eight-hour workday movement. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong If we could just start with, uh, what were conditions like for the average industrial worker in the 1880s? Well, I would say, first of all, there, there was no such thing as an average industrial worker at that time when industrial capitalism was just sort of getting on its feet, you had a tremendous variety of types of work and locations of work and people who did the work and much less uniformity than we would have today, for instance. So even in the same workplace, you might have people who are paid in entirely different ways in a single workplace, even in a single factory. You might have some groups of workers who are paid by the piece some group of workers who are paid by the day, and possibly some groups of workers who are on longer-term contracts. So it's the, the variety is actually head-spinning of, of, of that period. And that's one of the things that makes it very interesting and also very volatile, because nobody had clear expectations as to what work was or how it should be structured. All these things were in flux and were being fought over. And you know we, we kind of live in the legacy of the outcomes of those battles. But folks in the late 1800s, you know, they lived at a moment, I think, that was ripe with possibilities, a much more open-ended, I think, array of historical outcomes that they were, that they were deciding for us. Can you tell us about the eight-hour day movement? It actually begins decades earlier in the New England textile mills as the 10-hour movement. And it began in the Jacksonian and antebellum periods before the Civil War, and it began primarily with women workers, textile workers in what was then probably the most technologically advanced, most modern industrial sector of the entire economy. 
and that was uh, New England textile mills. And they were workers who, because they were at the very dawn of factory work, they uh, had been recruited from farm families, from New England farm families. And so they left their farm work and took on factory work. And the factories were structured the same way that farm labor was structured, in the sense that you work primarily from sundown to sunup or sunup to sundown. You didn't necessarily work by the clock. Your workday was not limited by time. It was limited by when the factory decided to start and when it decided to end. And only gradually did the rule of, of time, the rule of the clock, begin to get introduced into those textile mills. And as it got introduced, that became a point of struggle. So female workers who were working 12, 14 hours a day began uh, arguing and demanding a 10-hour day. And so that was the first short hours movement. And it's interesting to remind ourselves that you can't have a short hours movement until you start conceiving of your workday as limited by time as opposed to by the natural environment of when it's sunny or when it's rainy or when it's cold. That movement largely petered out by the time of the Civil War. As it turns out, as industrialization proceeded, most workers focused on the wage as opposed to the hours of labor. It revived in the 1880s again as another chaotic period of capitalist formation was in motion. And it's, it's not surprising that Chicago would be its epicenter because Chicago was probably the most dynamic city in the capitalist economy in the entire world in the 1880s. Chicago more than doubled its population in a single decade from 1880 to 1890. And here's a remarkable statistic. While it doubled its population, its industrial output increased 20 times. So a doubling of population, but an industrial output of 20 times, 20 multiples. And that indicates the rapid introduction of new technologies, the rapid reorganization of production, exploitation of workers to a much greater degree, speed ups and so forth. This is what eventually drives the movement for eight hours. It's not only a movement for workers individually to try and limit their working hours. In some respects, it's actually a movement that's trying to regulate the overall industrial economy during a time in which that industrial economy is tremendously chaotic. And it's the chaos and the insecurity and the constant churning of conditions that animated workers as much as any particular short hours demand. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Grab your popcorn and tune in your radio because on this week's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen talks about drive-in movie theaters. Once a declining business, drive-ins may have found a new way to revive themselves during the pandemic. Show starts in 10 minutes. Drive-in theaters were all the buzz in the 50s and 60s. This type of movie theater was extremely popular in rural areas, offering a large space where people could drive up, park, and just watch movies in the big outdoors. However, because of its outdoor location, the functioning hours of a drive-in theater were extremely dependent on weather conditions. Drive-in movie theaters have been on the decline. 
but it has perhaps regained some of their popularity over the pandemic. This week, we'll be talking about how drive-in theaters came to be and how they managed to revive their business during the pandemic. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Outdoor movie showings weren't new when drive-ins first came on the scene. In 1933, Richard Hollingshead opened the first drive-in movie theater in Camden, New Jersey. He created a ramp system for the cars so it could resemble that of a movie theater, where each card could just park in place and would be able to see the projection from their spot. Drive-ins started gaining traction in the 1950s and started popping up everywhere. Watching a movie at the drive-in theaters was an extremely easy and family-friendly activity as it allowed parents to simply bring their kids to a movie and enjoy the show in the familiarity of their own car. Drive-in theaters were also popular dating spots as they provided a romantic night of entertainment under the stars. For those who grew up going to drive-ins, you might recall some of these things you'd experience at the location. Lining up early at the entrance booth so you can get a good spot in the parking lot, buying buttery popcorn and hot dogs from the concession stands, tuning in to the correct FM frequency of the movie theater so the sound of the movie playing comes through your car radio, and of course, the classic ads that get played during intermission. What is it? Say, what is it? Hey, why it's buttercup? However, drive-in theaters started to decline in numbers in the 70s. One of the reasons is that drive-in theaters take up a large plot of land, and as land prices increase, it became harder to maintain the finances of the business. Another reason is that most drive-in theaters are small businesses, and many owners couldn't get their kids to inherit the business or find someone to take over once they retire. Lastly, because of its outdoor nature, drive-ins could only open during nighttime and on days where the weather permitted. In states where it's snowy for half the year, that puts the business out for a greater part of the year as well. Financially speaking, drive-ins were just not as viable of a business any longer. In the 80s, Cars became much smaller and it wasn't as comfortable to sit in a car and watch a movie anymore. These reasons left many drive-in theater businesses to shut down. With only 400 or so drive-in theaters left in the nation, you would think that business would simply die out slowly. But a turning point came. The COVID-19 pandemic hit and people were no longer able to go to indoor movie theaters. But the demand for watching movies on the big screen didn't just cease because we weren't allowed to leave our houses. Drive-ins were already outdoors, and people could safely social distance inside their cars while watching movies without coming in contact with others. A morning consult survey showed that over half of their respondents say they would be interested in seeing a movie at a drive-in during the pandemic, and 66% of the respondents were Gen Z adults. Most Gen Z adults didn't grow up when drive-ins were booming, so this could mean a new generation of clientele for drive-in theaters. Once a declining business model, drive-ins have perhaps found a new lifeline. While the pandemic shut down a lot of things, it gave drive-in theaters another opportunity to revive themselves. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen.
This week, feature contributor Harry Richardson does a double feature of Nick Cage reviews. First is the new film The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a hysterical satire and homage to Nick Cage and Hollywood. Second, a review of the Coen Brothers classic Raising Arizona with Nick Cage and Holly Hunter. What is your favorite movie? That's one of those questions that's impossible to answer. You can't just limit it to one. Imagine me and you, I do. Is it too much? Is this supposed to be me? It's grotesque. I'll give you 20,000 for it. That was a clip from the trailer for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, directed and co-written by Tom Cormican. This is a hysterical satire homage to Nick Cage and to the whole Hollywood stardom system. Cage has been in nearly 100 films. This one was a big hit at the recent Wisconsin Film Festival. Nick Cage stars as a sort of exaggerated tabloid version of himself. He's trying to get through to his 16-year-old daughter, Lily Sheen, and get along with his ex, Sharon Hogan. But most of all, he's facing a crisis of confidence, or rather he's avoiding facing a crisis of confidence. He doesn't get the role of a lifetime. He proclaims his retirement and agrees to do one last gig for a million dollars. He needs the money. Soon he's off to Spain on a private jet, and our movie really takes off. The million dollar gig is to hang out for a birthday with the wealthy Javi, a great role for Pedro Pascal, better known as the Mandalorian. After a rocky start, the two become fast friends. There are a couple of snags, however. Two CIA agents, well played by Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz. They claim Javi is a major drug dealer who has kidnapped the president's daughter, but Cage's thespian instinct says they're wrong. Javi seems to be a genuine superfan of Cage. There's a funny scene where Cage thinks he's on to something sinister, but it turns out to be a room full of Cage movie memorabilia. The room includes a grotesque statue of Cage with two golden guns from Face Off. Cage offers to buy the statue, but Javi respectfully declines, saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Cage, it is not for sale. The collection also contains the burnt bunny from Con Air, green prop nerve agent glass beads seen on the rock, and diapers from Raising Arizona. Javi's favorite movies are Face Off, the German silent film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, also one of Cage's favorite movies, and wait for it, Paddington 2. The two watch it together and end up in tears. There's more including a dramatic car chase, but you get the idea. A hysterical film. See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. Now for one of my favorite movies, which just happens to be one of Nick Cage's highest rated films. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona. A comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. That was a clip from Raising Arizona, 1987, co-written and directed by Joel Cohen. His brother, Ethan, co-wrote the script and produced the movie. This is a classic Cohen Brothers effort that looks like a live-action, surreal cartoon. It stars Nick Cage as High, a hapless convenience store robber who goes straight after meeting Ed, Holly Hunter. It's love at first sight for High. Ed is a police photographer that takes High's picture on the way to the slammer. Luckily for High, her boyfriend breaks up with Ed and he grabs his chance. They marry and he gets a boring factory job welding. Or he dryly notes, it's a lot like being in prison, except Ed is waiting at the end of the day and you get paid once a week. Hi is our narrator throughout the film. They live in a trailer park in Tempe, Arizona. All goes well until Hi and Ed decide they want to be parents. Sadly, it turns out Ed is infertile. Ed is inconsolable until one night on the news they hear that a local furniture magnate, Nathan, Arizona, Trey Wilson, 
and his wife have quintuplets. Wilson was in another of my favorite movies, Bull Durham, where he plays the world-weary coach of the Durham Bulls. Sadly, Williams died at age 40 of a cerebral hemorrhage shortly after being in Twins and Bull Durham in 1988. Mrs. Arizona says on TV that they have more kids than they can handle, and before you can say cute baby, Hi and Ed are off on an improbably long ladder. Hi amusingly takes off with one of the toddlers. Amazingly, they get away with it for a while. Then things get really complicated. Two of High's friends break out of prison, John Goodman and William Forsyth, and a mad biker dude goes hunting for the baby. The New Yorker's Pauline Kael describes a great scene in the film. High's apologetic expression when he demonizes this monster is Nick Cage at his most winning. The biker is a great over-the-top role for Randall Tex Cobb. Raising Arizona is playing this weekend at the UW-Madison Cinematheque. Check their website out for details. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Your reporters were Jade Asiri Ramos and Jonah Chetster with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.